Welcome to In-House Legal with attorney Paul Boynton. It's everything in-house, legally speaking. Technology, business practices, trends, and controversies important to corporate counsel. Welcome to the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen today to In-House Legal. I'm attorney Paul Boynton. And I've covered the in-house community for over six years as a legal journalist and now have my own media consultancy. Today's show is sponsored by Huron Consulting Group. On January 29th, President Obama signed his first bill into law, known as the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act of 2009. The trail to this historic moment of the nation's first African-American president signing an important civil rights law began with the U.S. Supreme Court ruling in 2007. The 5-4 decision essentially limited Title VII equal pay claims to those claims asserted within 180 days of a discriminatory pay decision. The court, in essence, rejected the so-called paycheck accrual rule. This rule had allowed the time limitation to begin anew with each paycheck containing an amount affected by a prior discriminatory pay decision. The practical impact of the court's decision in the Ledbetter case was that a Title VII claim was barred unless an employee learned about it and challenged it very quickly. This decision sparked a furious backlash leading to the bill passed by Congress and signed into law by President Obama. Here to talk with us today about this important new legislation and how it affects employers is Maria Rodriguez, a partner with Winston and Strawn in Los Angeles. Maria is an employment and labor law specialist. She represents employers in all areas of employment law including state and federal wage and hour cases, as well as discrimination matters. In 2006, Maria was named a Woman of Achievement by the Century City Chamber of Commerce and has also been recognized as a Southern California Super Lawyer Rising Star from 2005 through 2008. Welcome to the show, Maria. Hello, Paul. Thanks for having me. And thanks for joining us today. Now, in a nutshell, could you tell us what the Ledbetter Equal Pay Act says and why it's a significant uh, law for employers? Sure. Well, in a nutshell, the Ledbetter law extends the time period an employee can reach back to recover damages. So as you pointed out, during uh, the Ledbetter case, the court looked at the fact that Ms. Ledbetter was trying to reach back 14 years or so in terms of recovering damages, and the court said, no, that's too long. You have to stick with the statute of limitations that's prescribed by statute based on when the original discriminatory decision was made, and that obviously cut off a lot of her damages. And as you point out, this new law that's been enacted by uh, the federal government changes that case and says that the statute of limitation runs from the last payment that was made pursuant to the discriminatory decision. So that if a discriminatory decision is made 14 years back, but the employee has been suffering in terms of their pay increases all along and is underpaid as a result of that as recently as last week, that person can still bring an action that is essentially based on something that occurred 14 years ago. That's the biggest problem that that we see from the employer side, and I I think you and I will talk about some of the practical implications of that. The other uh, primary concern about this law is that the language is incredibly broad, and it, it basically says that 
when a discriminatory compensation decision or other practice uh, affects an employee's pay, benefits, uh, or, or other compensation, then that is a violation. And as you know, it's really difficult to define the words other practice, Paul. So aside from the seeming annihilation of the statute of limitations and uh, potentially dramatic expansion of damages, there's this amorphous phrase, other practice. So what the heck does that mean? It does. And I wish I could tell you, and it shows up three or four times in the language um, of the statute. And I wish that we had more um, information on what those words mean. I I think it's one of those things that we're going to find out as we go, unfortunately. Is it your sense that uh, plaintiff's lawyers are licking their chops at that phrase and uh, there should be quite a few lawsuits over it? You know, I think it's a matter of time before that happens, Paul. I think right now they're licking their chops at the notion that they can go back so far in time to recover damages, and this concept of these other practices will definitely be something that they capitalize on over time. Maria, does this law pretty much start the time clock for filing claims beyond just a paycheck? For example, when an employee receives a retirement benefit or a pension benefit or any other type of compensation? That's right, Paul. Anything that that any kind of payment in, in the forms that you just discussed will trigger uh, their ability to bring a claim under this law if they are um, discriminatorily low, those payments that they receive, because of some discrimination that occurred somewhere far back in time. Some are uh, speculating that this law will lead to many more equal pay lawsuits. Do you agree? Unfortunately, I imagine that it will. It does. It is quite an expansion. Um, it's no. It's not cause for mass hysteria, and we don't want corporate counsel to run around reacting to this per se. Uh, but I. But I do believe that it will increase the number of lawsuits, and unfortunately, probably increase the number of class action lawsuits. Now, this situation really, Maria, boils down to employees actually learning about pay disparities and then asserting claims, but. As a practical matter, do you think employees will be discussing how much they make as a result of this law any more than they had in the past? Mm. Paul, well, as you know, I practice law in California, and out here, uh, employees you know, seem to have a team of lawyers working for them and do talk about their wages. So I, I think that they're already doing that. I think employees are already talking about their wages. And as you know, um, employees have rights. Uh, that we have to protect, one of which is the freedom to associate, and that includes being allowed to talk about their wages. So, unfortunately, employers aren't going to be able to create a shield by just uh, prohibiting employees from talking about wages. So, what's your practical advice to companies? Uh, what do they and their in-house legal departments in particular need to be doing right now and in the long run to avoid liability under this new act? It's a great question, Paul. You know, the first thing, I've heard a lot of lawyers out there giving a lot of advice about what people need to be doing. And the first thing that I would advise uh, corporate counsel to do is to stop and think. Do not react. Do not begin um, engaging in behavior that is reactionary. They uh, they need to slow down, um, 
form probably a very, very small group of high-level executives that stop with counsel, of course, and they should do this with in-house and or outside counsel in order to invoke the privilege um, and the work product doctrine, although I, I warn everyone of, again, being very cautious because uh, there are cases, um, and, and, and as recently as the last six months, we had a case in California that says that uh the privilege doesn't always apply when there's an investigatory, um, when there's an investigation happening. And, and the case that I'm referring to in California is a Costco case. So that's the first question is, is really, how do we plan for this? How do we make sure that we invoke the privilege? And then once that small team of people sits down to talk about it, they need to remember that the Ledbetter Law doesn't just apply to gender. Um, the Ledbetter Law is amending Title Seven. And it is also intended to modify the operation of the Americans with Disabilities Act and the Rehabilitation Act of 1973, which means that these concepts apply to all protected classes under federal law. So when this core group within the company get together to determine what their plan of attack or their response to this law is going to be, um, certainly some data should be pulled so that companies can understand if their pay practices are having a disparate impact and dig deeper to see what if there is a disparate impact, what the reasons for those are. Are they discriminatory? Do we have any practices in place that are causing um, this disparate impact? Look at everything from um, how we pay in different regions to um, different parts of the company and ultimately, once the data is collected and the reasons for the different levels of pay are, are better understood, um, then a review of practices and policies definitely needs to, to follow that. And I would also urge, and again, this has to be done with caution and it should not be reactionary, I think manager training has to be improved um, in, in, in companies because it is the managers on the front line who often get us into this kind of trouble and it's unintentional more often than not because they don't have the knowledge that they need to have. Finally, companies need to look at their record retention policies and um, need to look at how they're going to roll out any kind of new policy and be very, very cautious, again, um, not to send the wrong message. It's important to send the right message. You know, for companies who've had lawful policies, they're not changing anything. They might just be improving the way they do things. So again, um, everything needs to be done very deliberately and I think cautiously. Maria, last question. From a uh, record-keeping standpoint, since the uh, law seems to expand the statute of limitations uh, very dramatically, what's your recommendation as to how long do uh, companies need to keep records? Is this going to be a, an HR nightmare? That's a great question. And we would hate to turn it into an HR nightmare. The good news is that with um, electronic uh, ability, the ability to save documents electronically, again, I think if companies plan properly, it should be a matter of um, storing documents. I do think record retention policies are going to need to be extended. The, um, the outside statute of limitations up until now that we have in California goes four years for wages, and that is the longest employment law statute of limitations that we've had up until now. This certainly changes the equation. And, you know, the question is, do, should companies keep records forever? That seems very, very long. Uh, 
I don't think so, but definitely depending on the company and what their ability is to retain records, it will need to be far longer than it has been up until now. It's hard to say, Paul, whether it should be 10 or 12 or 15 years. I really think it depends on the company. So it's really a rule of reason? That's right. That's exactly right. Maria, thank you for joining us today to share your thoughts and insights on how in-house lawyers can advise their companies on complying with this dramatic new law. Uh, If you would, could you please share with our listeners your contact information? Thank you, Paul, and it was a pleasure, and I appreciate that. I can be emailed at mlikemaria, C like Charlie, Rodriguez, R-O-D-R-I-G-U-E-Z, at Winston, W-I-N-S, T-O-N dot com, and the telephone number here is 213-615-1907. Maria, thank you so much. We're going Thanks to take again, a, Paul. Thank you. We're going to take a quick break, and when we return, we will be joined by Richard Stout, Director of the Litigation Support Division for Council on Call, and Dennis McKinney, Executive Director of Council on Call's Atlanta's office. Here on Consulting Group's Legal Consulting Practice a leading provider of consulting and business services to corporations and law firms, helps align strategy, people, processes, and technology to meet the goals of the organization. We also help prepare and plan for all phases of discovery in a legal dispute or investigation. We establish an effective records management program that creates cost savings and enhanced productivity while minimizing risk. Check out Velocity, the first comprehensive e-discovery solution. For more information, visit us at www.huronconsultinggroup.com. Welcome back to In-House Legal. I'm your host, Paul Boynton. We are now joined by Richard Stout, Director of the Litigation Support Division for Council on Call, and Dennis McKinney, Executive Director of Council on Call's Atlanta's office. Both of these gentlemen are former practicing attorneys and general counsels, and it's my pleasure to welcome them to the show. Thanks so much for joining us today, Dennis. I'd like to start with you, if I could. If I'm an in-house litigation manager, what questions am I asking right now? Thanks, Paul. It's uh, really great to be on the show with you today. Um, You know, corporate litigation managers are under tremendous amount of pressure right now. Much of that is stemming from the the increased focus on e-discovery, and it's coming not just from lawyers, but from business managers, because they're the ones who are having to write those big checks. They know it's an area where a lot of money can be spent, but they also know that they can save money there. So the result is that more and more in-house departments are looking at their entire approach to discovery to save even more money, and this is what I mean. They're not just looking at hourly rates of document review attorneys. Frankly, the profession has moved well beyond the point where we were paying $200 uh, for an hour of an attorney's time just to review documents. What they're looking at now is how they can drive their costs even lower. And this is where somebody like Richard, who's had years of litigation experience and has been focused on the e-discovery process as it has evolved, he actually brings a lot of value to the table. Well, this is a good time to bring in Richard. And Richard, if you could uh, talk a little bit about what can be done before the uh, review begins. Thanks, Paul. It's good to be here. And I would just echo what Dennis has said. Uh, Once you've driven down the hourly rate of the review attorney, there are really two main areas that you can save money on e-discovery. And first is to reduce the amount of data that you have to review and second is to review that data faster. So what's the best way to reduce the amount of data the attorneys will ultimately review? Well, again, this, they're really, it's 
two-step process um, that needs to be considered. First is uh, most companies already use a front-end processing tool. By that, I mean um, the suppression of duplicate emails or files or near duplicates or system files. And that typically can reduce the volume of data by 20 to 30%. Now, the second step that we've seen is, and this has really matured over the last 12 months, is the use of early case assessment tools. And unlike the traditional front-end processing that is actually fully automated, uh, early case assessment tools add the human component to the process. Uh, by that, I mean the attorney can actually look at live data and go in and identify broad categories of clearly non-relevant information, whether that's by the time period in which the email may have been sent or if it's one of those subscription-type emails from eBay or, you know, where we have thousands in our inbox. It really allows uh, the attorney to be a part of the processing. And the end result is a, a massive reduction of the data to review, sometimes in the range of 80 to 90 percent, and needless to say, if you've got 80 to 90 percent less data to review, the cost savings are dramatic on down the line. And I'd like to add at this point that it all goes back to proper planning on the front end. Once you've figured out what really needs to be reviewed, the tools you're going to use, well, it's just much easier to, to determine how many attorneys that you're going to need on the review and how quality and production are going to be monitored. Then you're well on your way to creating what is a very highly efficient and a cost-saving process. So the cost benefits are pretty obvious of reviewing 80 to 90% less data, but talk a little bit about how the software selected for the review adds savings, or does it really? Well, Paul, it absolutely does. Selecting the right software platform and going a step further and, and selecting the team that's going to maximize all of that software's capabilities is very important. You know, software's come a long way in recent years, and the preferred tool that we're looking at today is something called a content analytic tool. It's basically a review tool that organizes all of your documents into groups based on the subject matter. Well, comparing this to a traditional linear tool, which simply sorts data chronologically, they're more expensive. But what we found is that the content analytic tool is typically three to five times faster, and that speed justifies the higher cost. What it really boils down to is increasing the rate that the attorneys can review the documents. Review rate is probably the most significant cost involved in the e-discovery process, and, you know, it's one misconception in our profession that, you know, the hourly rate is the biggest cost driver. And, you know, that might be true if you're going to pay $200 or more an hour to review documents. But in reality, every e-discovery company out there is, is in the same ballpark with respect to attorney rates. And, and I mean, literally within $10 an hour. But if you've got one set of attorneys who review documents significantly faster than another, if you spread that out over the life of the project, the savings becomes very, very significant. And, you know, attorneys who know how to use the software and companies that know what to monitor and how to drive the productivity of their attorneys, well, they're the ones that are providing the real cost savings and who learn how to be even more efficient on the next project that they're going to do for you. So how significant does the review rate difference need to be to see real cost savings? Well, I'd agree with Dennis that this is one of the most overlooked areas that we encounter when speaking with in-house departments. Um, on even the most basic level, if the technology plus the quality and the organization of the attorney review team allows that individual attorney reviewer 
to increase his rates by his decisions per hour by five to ten document decisions. You can dramatically reduce the cost of the review, uh, the number of attorneys you need for the review, and the time frame needed to complete the review. And those are really three important factors in controlling any e-discovery budget. Now, to apply that to a real-world type numbers, um, if you take a, a medium-sized case, say 30 gigabytes of data or 400,000 emails, and you are utilizing a traditional linear tool, uh, you would expect to see document decisions per hour per attorney in the 30 to 50 document decisions per hour range. If you were to increase that by 20 decisions per hour, uh, on that same medium-sized case, you would see an over you would see an overall savings of over one hundred twenty five thousand dollars in attorney time and in a twenty five to forty percent savings in time, and that's a conservative example. Uh, if you if you were to utilize a content analytic tool like Dennis mentioned earlier, um, it's not uncommon to see review rates in excess of three to five times of that normal rate, which on this same medium sized case. Uh, could save in excess of $300,000 uh, and over 70% savings in time on that same uh, amount of data. So uh, it's all in the review rates, and that's where the focus really should be. Now, you mentioned the management and monitoring of the team and how that generates additional savings. How does that function? Well, this goes directly to the overall goal of any review, which is to create an efficient, quality-driven work product. But the question is, how do you know if you're going to accomplish your goal if you're not tracking what's being done and, and, and not benchmarking it? What you've got to do is set a minimum review rate for the team and make sure that each attorney on that team is reaching that level. You've also got to have a good quality control team in place. That team can quickly disseminate information like, you know, correcting common mistakes, uh, if deadlines change, getting that getting that uh, out to the team, or if new information, for instance, comes from the outside counsel, that needs to be communicated. And those clear lines of communications are critical. Uh, team leaders and their daily conference calls with outside counsel, so very important to making sure that the entire team is on the same page day after day after day. How does the client use the data that's gained during this process? Uh, that's another area that we think often neglected on a typical e-discovery case. Um, that is the retained knowledge component that each case can provide. Uh, that's, you know, after spending hundreds of thousands or even millions of dollars on an e-discovery project, often the end result is just an invoice. And we just think that's insufficient in today's times and today's marketplace. What in-house counsel are really looking for is transparency. And so by detailing the amount of data that was collected processed, reviewed, and produced, you can really provide something that the in-house counsel can look at and see where their money went and, more importantly, where they can uh, save money on future projects. Take that same information and you can break it down even further. Um, you could break it down on a per-gigabyte basis, a per-document, per page, or even a per-custodian basis. All this information um, it's critical for the in-house legal department to incorporate into its litigation planning and budgeting and really have a basis for um, uh, controlling the case when it comes in and not just reacting to it. Outside counsel has been mentioned a few times by you gentlemen. Uh, what's their role in all of this? Well, I mean, in short, it's their case. Um, outside counsel is responsible um, 
for representing the client and advancing the litigation strategy. Nothing that we've talked about today changes that. All the processes that we're talking about are designed to free outside counsel to do just that, litigate the case. What an e-discovery partner um, should do is to free up counsel to do that and help manage the cost and processes involved in the e-discovery component of the case. So the end result for the client is it gets the best of both worlds. Outside counsel manages the litigation, e-discovery partner manages the cost, and everyone is maximized to what they do best. And this is a repeatable process. It can be used time and time again. So when it's all totaled up, what should an in-house department really expect to save versus a traditional e-discovery approach? Well, Paul, as you can probably imagine, every situation with respect to e-discovery is unique. But uh, the good news that's out there is that there's some very straightforward things you can do to quantify the savings. But you've got to be sure that you're comparing apples to apples. So, you know, while a, uh, a department that uses a traditional approach might be paying upwards of $30,000 per gigabyte for, the, for e-discovery, our approach actually costs less than $10,000 per gigabyte. Now, there's some out there who are using what, what's become known as a, quote, more modern approach. They're paying by the page or by the document. Um, our approach, or the approach that we're talking about here today, has a lot more transparency and hopefully is going to avoid a lot of those premium costs. And it's still going to save about a third of the cost. And these costs don't even speak to performing the steps that we discussed, you know, right at the front end of the process. And those can instantly cut costs in half. So... What you're really talking about is cost savings somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 to 75% in total versus a traditional method, and it addresses all the areas of discovery, not just reviewing documents, and, and can save literally millions of dollars in many different cases. It's all about the process and that all-important concept of planning. So how is this level of savings really achieved? Uh, how does a legal department know if its process really is a good one? There's some really easy questions that you can ask, I mean, right off the bat. First of all, do you have control of your litigation or are you relying on the process of somebody else? Secondly, are you paying more than $65 an hour for attorneys to handle the review? Do your documents get reviewed by more than one of your service partners? In other words, are you using an alternative uh, service provider are they reviewing the material, and is the outside counsel's associates reviewing the material? And lastly, at the end of the day, are you able to measure and quantify the results and benchmark that data? And, Paul, the answers to these questions are really important because, you know, whether a company is, is using outside counsel solely or whether they're looking at an alternative service provider or actually may, maybe even having some of this work done in India, you know, it's very typically been a very jagged process. It's inefficient and it's duplicative. The in-house department, you know, historically has not had control, but they've been put in the very difficult position of justifying the cost of this stuff. So, you know, once you develop a process that the in-house department controls, it's so much simpler and it's much more consistent. It's repeatable. It makes the best use of resources. It's easy. And last but certainly not least, it saves a lot of money. 
Sounds like it. Uh, thank you, Dennis and Richard. This has been very illuminating. I've also enjoyed your blog posts on these subjects, and I'd encourage anyone to visit the blog at www.laudable.com and read their commentary. That's www.laudable.com. Thanks, Paul. Appreciate Thanks, Paul. it. Thank you, Dennis and Richard. If you'd like to get in touch with either Dennis or Richard, they can be reached at 866-487-7319 or on counciloncall.com or on the Laudable blog. We hope you'll join us for another in-house legal show. Thanks for listening today. I'm Paul Boynton, host of In-House Legal, your online source of the news and information in-house lawyers need to stay ahead of the game. Thanks for listening to In-House Legal with attorney Paul Boynton. Hot topics for the in-house lawyer, legally speaking. We hope you'll listen to the next edition right here on the Legal Talk Network.